Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's great to have you all here today. If you are a guest today, normally we pick up a book of the Bible and we walk through it. But for the next few weeks, we're continuing our series called Making a Difference. But I do want to draw your attention to something special that is happening on the weekend of October 15th and 16th. On that Saturday, we are bringing in a special guest. Um, some of you will remember her. Her name is Joanne Goodwin. And she's going to be doing a seminar on that Saturday entitled Maintaining a Healthy State of Mind. This is uh, something that is open for everyone. Uh, it's all about mental health. It runs from 10 to 2.30. Uh, lunch and snacks are all included in your registration price. It's $20 per person or if you're a couple, $30 per couple. And registration will be online shortly. And so Joanne will also be speaking here on Sunday, October the 16th. And uh, again, don't hesitate to invite a friend to join us. Joanne is uh, a comedian of sorts, but also uh, has her own story regarding mental health. We've had her a couple times and uh, going back to the well because she's so great. So I want to encourage you to mark that in your calendar, the 15th and the 16th of October, and uh, join us and be a part of that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, th we thank you that we can gather and pause and reflect on the things that matter most. And in a room this size, we can only imagine the hurt, the pain, the burdens that we've dragged through these doors that uh, maybe we're not even aware of. So God, as we explore your kind of, uh, what your kind of community looks like, we don't want to be loaded down with one more thing to do. And so we want to be free to embrace who we are. So please, Holy Spirit, flow in this place, flow in our hearts, and show us things that we have not seen before. And may everything thought and everything spoken and everything felt be blessed by you. Amen. How many of you like watching sitcoms? Okay, a few hands. The rest of you are liars. That's all right. Welcome to church. Any Parks and Recs people here? Yeah, that's more hands, who's than hands that went up. What about Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Yeah, yeah, community? Okay, we got community. How about the good place? Yeah, yeah, Schitt's Creek. Anybody? Yeah, you're going to need uh, counseling afterwards, but that's okay. What about the office? Arrested Development? Really, not very many. How about Big Bang Theory? Any of you still into Seinfeld? Crickets? No, uh, Cheers? Uh, okay, now you're dating yourself, eh? What about friends? Yeah, yeah, the old people are there. What about Hogan's Heroes? Oh, yeah, Gilligan's Island. Come on. And now, for you millennials who don't know Hogan's Heroes or Gilligan's Island, you guys go to watch that. That's the best comedy around. Anyway, uh, I would think that many of us during the pandemic spent time watching TV, Netflix, and other types of social media apps, right? We were going to old shows. We were watching reruns over and over again. Why? To possibly fill the gap that is missing in our lives. Now, we're created to hang with people, but when it was restricted, it was very hard on so many, so many people. Was it not? Like, I'm just speaking the truth here. And so what do we do? We, we retreated into vicarious living through shows that would make us laugh, that would make us escape, even for a few minutes. Now, <clears throat> I know that COVID is still with us. It's not going anywhere soon. But without question, this, this 
post-pandemic space, if I could say that, is where we find ourselves today, and I think it's kind of left us all a little woozy. Again, the, the, the pandemic has affected everyone. It has affected all of us personally and our culture as well in a great way. It has changed people. And even it has brought out the worst in people. And even now, day after day, the same handful of phrases clog our news and our social media feeds and they rise up into the trending tickets, you know, for all you Twitter fans out there. But a lot of things that are happening during this time, a lot of things that we're hearing or reading, the, you know, these same words in the media are showing up at home, they're showing up online. And I have to be honest, I start to get frustrated and I start to get a little bit tiresome. Now, maybe I can't speak for you, but there are a number of words and phrases I never want to hear again, like social distancing, the new normal, unprecedented, uncertain, speaking moistly, self-isolate. Pivot, bubble, anti-masker. And at last, but not least, for our purpose today, I'll start the phrase and then you can finish it along with me. We, yeah, okay, right, okay. Here's the thing about that phrase. Even though we may get tired of hearing about it, it's biblically and the theologically profoundly true. In fact, it speaks to the heart of what it means to be human and what it actually means to be Christian. And so today is all about the vital subject of biblical community, and society often sees faith as a private matter. But authentic biblical faith is not a me thing. It not, has nothing to do with the me thing. It's a we thing, and it's all about relationships. Professor Robert Putnam, in his famous and controversial book, he wrote in, I think, the year 2000, it's called Bowling Alone. He argues that the United States had undergone an unprecedented collapse in civic and social, associational and political life, which is social capital, since the 1960s and serious consequences. In other words, he goes on to say that the greatest social epidemic in America and American life is loneliness. That was back in the year 2000, pre-COVID. And I believe that the, the, this thought, this statement may re resonate with many of us here in Canada who feel alienated, who feel lonely, who feel depressed, who go home every night and we watch our apps or we watch TV and we eat on our couches by ourselves. Kind of like over the last two years, we've been conditioned to do this. But is this really the life we should or could be living? I think one of the most important things in a person's life is the people we do life with. Well, the world tells us that we can do it on our own. For instance, as a matter of fact, let me, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Let me self-disclose. I want you all to know that I was an intelligent child. I, I, I emerged from the womb on my own strength. I did. I, um, I actually I took the tools from the doctor and I cut my own umbilical cord and tied it off. No, no, to tell you the truth, I, you know, I didn't even need that cord in the first place because it really, in utero, I obtained my own food through my own hard work. That's what I did. That's how I do things. 
When I was placed in the crib, I, I slept in the crib of my own making. Yeah. I nourished myself from cows that I found in the wild and domesticated myself. Just want you to know that. I spun cotton from plants that I myself raised from seedlings, and I wove all my own clothing as I grow, grew up. I taught myself how to speak and read. I want you to know that. Merely by conducting my own extensive field research and deducing by my own mental abilities of the way from preschool on the way up, when I wasn't really busy with everything else, like the cattle and the, the farm. And there was not a scrap of clothing that I wore that I did not make. There was not a morsel of food that I ate that I did not harvest or kill myself. You need to know that. Not a piece of information that I did not obtain through the deductive powers of my own intellect. And so I just want you to know that I am not now nor have I ever been in need of anyone at all for anything. I am, by the very definition, a self-made man. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's too late for the rest of you. Um, and of course, this is all absurd. But that's just the logical extreme of that idea that is actually quite prevalent within our culture today. The idea of a self-made person. The rugged individual who has lifted themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? who doesn't need anyone. It's actually a very powerful myth, but it's a myth nonetheless. And so we imagine ourselves as entirely independent, wholly realized and separate individuals. That's who we are. I don't need nothing from no one. But that is demonstrably false. Contrary to my own fanciful history that I just shared with you, we don't come out of the womb and take care of ourselves, right? We're fed, we're clothed, we're nurtured with food that we did not plant, with clothes that we did not make, and care that we could not give ourselves. We are taught by others who accumulated knowledge beforehand that was given to them yet by somebody else. We're given so much by so many others to get to where you are today. But somehow, our culture seems to elevate the attitude that individuals are above the need for community, or at the very least, the emphasis of the goal of being independent of and free from the constraints and accountability of a community. And then for so many of us, our work and life's demands, and for others, like our kids take all of our time and energy, and we don't think that we have enough time for relationships and for spending time in community, but we need to make the time. God wants community for us. The scripture is clear. If we want to experience God's presence, we are to seek him through his word, uh, through the power of his Holy Spirit. There are also through relationships with other people. This is all part and parcel. And more often than not, the way that you get hugs from God, if I can put it this way, the way that you can feel his physical presence is from his people in your life. Because he lives inside of these people that love him. And they in turn share that love with you. The truth is, is that God wants to help you in your life. He wants to listen to you, but often he's not going to show up in some 
with some visible angel or an angelic form. He's going to show up in a friend. He's going to show up with another Christian brother or sister. That's how God shows up. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And, and this is how we love one another, which it takes time, it takes commitment, and God never intended for any of us to live the Christian life alone. In my experience in ministry, at the mere mention of the word community, people often roll their eyes, right? Or they'll look at you like you've dropped from another side of the world. They'll smile, you know, tolerantly, and then hope that you're going to change the subject. And this is from good, sensible Christian people at the best, right? They fear that you're going to tell them that they have to sell all they own, that they have to go move on a farm and wear bib overalls and raise hogs. Or that they're going to have to abandon their fertilized lawns and move into the inner city because they misunderstand the idea of what community really is all about. And many Christians actually don't want to think about that at all. And to avoid thinking about community simply because we misunderstand it will deprive us of one of God's greatest gifts. The idea of community is, in a sense, from another world. A world very unlike our own. And community is from one, is really, when you think about it, is, is, is from the world as God wants it to be. And it's the gift of a rich and challenging life together. One that we can, actually one that we need and one that we can receive with joy. In other words, we need each other. And Christian community is simply sharing a, a common life in Christ. It moves us beyond the self-interest isolation of our private lives and beyond the superficial social contacts that pass for Christian fellowship. And the biblical idea of community challenges us instead to commit ourselves to life together as the people of God. In our high-tech society, we've gained convenience, but we've lost something in the process. You know, why, why do we forget talking face-to-face -face and choose text? You ever been in a room with other people who are actually texting each other in your presence? Oh, yeah, all you guys have. <laughs> you probably do it, right? Hey, I just want you to know, I did it with my wife today <laughs> in the same room. It's interesting. You see, we crave, absolutely crave, to belong, to be intimate with each other. We can't help it. It's actually the way we're wired. And I believe that this is why there are so many country music songs, but I'll, I digress. Okay, so we're going to get our Bible and theology on right now. So people, as we dive into today's topic, uh, I want to start with a little Bible quiz. Uh, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, don't worry, just follow along and learn as you go. The quiz consists of just one question. Think about it. What was the very first crisis recorded in the Bible? Just think about that. Now, if your first instinct was to think, well, it's Adam and Eve's fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, you'll be in very good company. Because when thousands of church leaders were asked this question, about 70% of them responded with that answer. But the fall of Adam and Eve does does not constitute the first crisis in the Bible. The first crisis that can actually be found in Genesis 2.18, where 
where it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, and so I'll make a helper suitable to him. It's not good. And this is the very first time in the Bible that anything in God's creation is said to be less than good. In fact, up to this point, every phrase of God's work of creation has always been followed by the refrain, and God saw that it was good. And so throughout the whole creation narrative of Genesis chapter 1, that phrase gets repeated again and again and again until God finally announces his crowning act of creation. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Now, if you jump there down to verse 31, we read then, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. We read that God made all human beings in his image. And then he looks over all that he made, he saw that was very good. So in the Bible's opening chapter, the rhythm of God's creation of this world is there. And it was good, 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 and it was very good. And when we get to the next chapter, which is chapter 2, the story of creation is repeated. In case you didn't know that in your Bible. But this time it comes from a more zoomed-in perspective. And it's here where we learn that the first man was actually created before the first woman. Which means that there's this period of time when Adam was alone in the Garden of Eden. And while he was, you know, he really wasn't completely alone because God was with him. But of course, you know, that's incredible and mind-blowing all at the same time. But Adam was also in the company of a lot of animals. But in terms of human companionship, Adam was indeed alone. And this was a state of affairs that prompted God to say it was not good for the man to be alone. Now, in the flow of the biblical text, these words are meant to grab our attention. This is the way the author wrote it. When I used to teach in Bible schools, I used different methods to ensure that my students would not fall asleep. Do you remember flip phones? My best one was I used to bring a jammer to, to school all the time, stick it under my desk and watch students go absolutely crazy. Because they're trying to text because they can text behind their back and they can't text because I had jammed the signal in this classroom. Anyway, that's illegal and I didn't do it. Um, another one was I'd tell them that I would kiss them if they fell asleep in my class. Now, now I can go to jail for that, but that's a whole other story. And what I did, actually, if you did fall asleep in my class, I'd actually lick my hand, walk up to them and go, and when they would wake up like that. But usually that was enough of a threat to keep them awake. The other one was to, well, I would throw chalk and other things. I was a great teacher. I just want people to know that, but that's probably why I'm in the ministry now, and they don't give me a chalkboard. But um, I'd also shout random words unexpectedly in unexpected intervals during the class time, during the lecture. Okay, please open your textbooks to page 151. That would wake everybody up in the classroom. It happened all the time. The author of Genesis is trying to startle his readers in that very same way. He's trying to wake us up to something that's going on here. And just because you settled into chapter 1's refrain and everything is good, you suddenly hear the words, it's not good, when you least expect it. 
And it becomes jarring from that, that perspective. And, and even in a setting so pristine, something was still not good. And the problem was that man was alone. Now remember, this is before the fruit. This is before the serpent or anything like that. There's a God who is a community of oneness who creates one person and observes this one person who is not able to reflect the image of God. And then God says, look, this is not good. His outfits will never match. He needs some other help. And this is the Garden of Eden, and it was supposed to be perfect, and yet in the garden, this is not good. And what's not good? Well, what's not good is he's alone. And this is sometimes why it's so dangerous when Christians say things like, all you need is God. It'd be nice. Except for God doesn't think that. In the scriptures, right away, you have somebody who is alone, and God is saying, this ain't good. So God does something about it. Genesis 2, 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a suitable helper for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken on the man. He brought it to the man. The man said, and now the way he says this, although we read it, he's actually singing. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother. He's united with the wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So this passage here not only has important implications for marriage and relationships between men and women, but even more fundamentally, it has tremendous implications for human relationships in general. And God creates woman who is symbolic of the image being reflected. Why? Because... You have more than one person. It's not good for us to be alone, for us to be isolated from other human beings. Why? Because you and I have been created for a community. In fact, just to reinforce this truth, you don't have to write down, or I should say, why don't you just write down in your phones, I am created for community? You should. You should be reminded all the time that you are created for community. Now, some of us, we like our alone time, whether it's a drive, you know, from work back to the house or we, we go off and we go on a retreat. That's fine. That's not what we're talking about here. I heard a stat that said uh, half of all the adult surveys say they experience loneliness at least weekly. And this has become intensified by the isolating effects of the pandemic. But even pre-pandemic, as a uh, church leader and podcaster Kerry Newhoff, he, he said this, he said, the paradox of our age is that we've never been more connected as a culture and we've never felt more alone. The ache of our loneliness today is an echo of that very first crisis recorded in the Bible, a crisis of community. And you see, Adam was lacking that human counterpart and therefore human community was not yet possible and so to rectify this god creates a woman out of adam's ribs all other living creatures including adam had been made out of the dust of the earth the woman however is special she's made from adam to be compatible with him and together they were not only the first male female couple they also formed the very first human community now let's go back to genesis 127 God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. You'll notice that God's image is made complete once there is a them. 
once a human community has been formed. It's only when Adam and Eve come together to form the very first human community that God upgrades the status of creation to be what? Very good. And yes, the verse about the two becoming one flesh does have marriage in view, and I get that, but it also speaks of the primary goal of all humanity is that this togetherness. And God's primary goal for humanity is loving community. And for many of us to be as one. Dallas Willard is a theologian. He put it this way. He says, God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself as the primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. So really, before humanity could truly be said to bear God's image, there needed to be more than one person. There needed to be at least two. There needed to be a plurality. And if that's the case, it implies something very important about who and God and his nature, about the kind of God he is. And on the basis of the careful study of the scriptures, early Christian theologians articulated what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is a foundational Christian teaching that there is one God who exists in a loving community of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Christians are monotheistic. Yeah, we believe that there is one God, but we believe that God's oneness is not singular or solitary. Rather, the oneness of God is the oneness of community, of a loving, of a relational unity between three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Scripture makes it clear that God's most fundamental attribute, His most defining characteristic is what? It's love. The Bible says in 1 John 4 that God is love. So, so love is not just something that God does. Love is who God is. Why? Because God exists in a loving, triune community of oneness, of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is love. And because God is love, He treasures relationships. And out of the overflow of the profound loving community experienced in the Trinity, God goes on to say, basically, I want to broaden this circle. This idea of community is so good, it's so rich, it's so beautiful, that I will create human beings in my own relational image and invite them to bask in loving community with me and each other. And so God's a relational God. And because we have been made in his relational image, we're made for loving relationships. We're created for community with God and with each other. And when you listen closely enough, don't the whispers, don't the pangs, don't the yearnings of your soul tell you that that's exactly the case. And it doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or an introvert. Someone wrote, the silent churning at the core of our being is the tormenting need to know and be known, to understand and to be understood, to belong unconditionally and forever without fear of loss, betrayal, or rejection. In other words, what we are seeking is, is love unbounded. We are seeking love without walls. We want to know that we are not outside the boundaries of somebody's complete love, that someone out there can love me as I am. We want that. There's somebody out there whom I can be real and not fear rejection or ridicule. 
The author writes, he says, and now wherever there is hope, our hope for paradise regained for the redemptive restoration of community. When you think about it, there's actually both beauty and a sadness to these words. The beauty of, of the ideal paradise regained, but the fact that it's broken beforehand. And before the fall, Genesis tells us that the first human beings had been naked, they've been unashamed. And it's more than just a matter of dress. This speaks to how they were fully free to be their authentic selves in relationship with one another and with God. They were delightfully unselfconscious. Then the serpent enters the picture, tempts them with the fruit. Come on, you can do it. The woman takes the fruit, eats it, gives some to her husband who is with her. He eats it. And then Genesis 3, 7, we read, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I need to stop here for a second, because rabbis, when they studied the scriptures, they, and they came across a word that made them sort of scratch their head, uh, what they did is they, they would ask themselves, where does the word first appear in the text? And it's actually a principle. It's, it's called the principle of, of, of first mention. And so, for example, if the rabbis are studying and they come across the word hate, where does it first appear in the text? And often that means that the, the writers are often working off the first mention of that word. So there's all sorts of subtle nuances and everything else that are going on, but it brings you back to the original usage of the word. So when we read this passage and the word naked shows up, or if you're red, redneck, naked, what do we do? Where do we go? Well... We go back to Genesis 2.25, where we read the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Here we find two people who are fully themselves, totally accepting, validating, embracing, being okay with who they are, with who the other person is. And so the word naked here can be read actually on multiple levels. This is who I am, and it's, it is nothing but unconditional love and acceptance and total naked honesty, vulnerability, openly accepted. And when they live some other way, in other words, when they take the fruit, all of a sudden something happens and they become aware that they are naked. In my mind, this must have been a comedy of realization. Like, how do you realize that you've been naked when you've been naked the whole time? Uh, hey, you're naked. I guess you're right. It's just like a, something just went. And the result of this awareness is that they realize that they're naked, and what do they do? They cover up. And this is the first place that we're told in Scripture about the results of this fatal choice that they have made. And so as their eyes were opened, trust, authenticity, all that begins to dissolve. And for the first time ever, this couple feels shame. What do they do? They feel they need to protect themselves. They feel they need to defend themselves. They feel that they need to cover up. They feel that they need to hide each other, and they hide from God. They took the fruit. They chose to live outside the way God created for them to, to live. They chose to live for their own purpose. And the first place this sin wounds appears is between their relationship. The first thing the, the fall affects is how two people get along. And all the people said, whoa. 
Have you ever had a conflict with another person? Not me. I think it's quite possible we all have, right? It's as old as humanity itself. But sometimes we're shocked when a relationship goes sour on us. You ever had those? Where did this come from? And then there's two sides. And this is as old as time itself, right? It goes back to these first two people when they began to cover up. And so we're terrified all around us to the fact that other people may see who I really am and what I am really like. Because I can't let you see who I really am because now shame has entered in and you may not love me if I actually self-disclose. And I can't tell you everything because you might judge me. And so now I have to put on an act. And the first effect of the fall of humans is right at the core of the relationship. And what happens there is a wedge is drived into it. Where there was once unrestrained embrace, there's now restraint. Where there was once closeness, there's now distance. Where there was once intimacy, there's now doubt. And unconditional love is now questioned. And this is not just a Christian or religious thing. It's a people thing. Again, God created us to live in an honest, open, vulnerable relationship with each other. And anything else isn't how we were made to live. The fig leaf issue comes up all the time in Scripture, and the fig leaf issue comes up all the time in our lives. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever cover up your true self? Do you ever hide from others? Do you ever hide from God? You ever hide from yourself? You see, the image of God, the image of the relational God is stamped upon us. But it's become distorted because of our sin. And this is precisely why we find ourselves yearning for loving community while at the same time trying to run and hide from it. And so I speak to the cameras today. If you're watching live, and many are you doing that, and you can relate to what I just described. If you yearn for community on the one hand, and yet you resist it on the other, you need to get back involved. One of the things, and I, we, our focus as a church is when we gather together, we, we make the allowances of of the broadcast that's so when people can't be here but at some point in time we have to get out of this post-pandemic fear and we have to get back together again we need each other and so there are many of you maybe watching online today that part of our community always have been we need you but we want you to be here with us we want you to be in not just in a corporate worship experience we want you to be in a community experience and I'd venture to say that you need us. Even in the church where a loving relationship should have the best chance of flourishing, the cultivation of community remains a constant challenge. And it requires tremendous effort and it requires intentionality. And it's plenty of plain hard work and sacrifice. And frankly, it's, it's very risky. 
And so on, an obvious question arises. Is community worth pursuing? And the Bible's answer to this is yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. Why? Because God's dream has not changed. And you and I are made for God's dream. We're created for community. And getting there will always have its challenges, but God's dream of community will most certainly be realized. In fact, the closing chapters of the Bible paints this glorious picture of the end time and Jesus' return to earth. Revelation 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is a picture of God's dream community being fully realized. This is where history is heading. And if you choose to align yourself with Jesus Christ, you will be in on God's dream. Your soul's hunger for perfect, unbroken community will one day be completely and forever satisfied. One day. So both the opening and the closing chapters of the Bible and so many hundreds of chapters in between has God's dream of loving community in view. And God creates human beings in his own relational image through Jesus. He will ultimately redeem these fallen beings, fully restoring his relational image in us. Our sins, which separate us from God and each other, were born on the cross by Jesus. And when they were, our sins got in between Jesus and God the Father, separating them from each other for a time so that Jesus cried out at one point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you even begin to fathom the infinite price God paid to save us from sin? Not only did Jesus suffer and die for us, but also God sacrificed for a time the perfect, cherished, unbroken oneness that the Father and the Son had forever enjoyed. That they enjoyed with each other so that in Christ you and I could be forgiven and restored into a loving relationship, into a loving community with God and also each other. When it comes to living in a Christian community, Tim Keller hits the nail on the head. He says, people are messy. Therefore, relationships will be messy. Expect messiness. When you run from community, you run from yourself. When you run from community, you are running from the part within you that is contributing to the messiness. You want to get away from others because you don't want to face what's happening in you. And when that happens, you begin to short-circuit your own growth in Jesus. Those are hard words. When it comes to community, our default posture should be one of stability. I would go so far as sticking to the local congregation that we're a part of. Through thick and thin. Because when your church relationships get messy, and they will, it's incredibly easy to transfer to the church down the street. Especially nowadays when we live in an era where the phenomenon of church shopping has always been a thing. But just like with our marriages, just like with our families, it's when we stay and we work through the messiness 
that Jesus does his best work in and through us, shaping us in his humility and love in ways that can never happen otherwise. It's when we stay and work through the messiness, that community, that kind of community that we're created for, that it becomes truer, it becomes deeper, and it becomes richer. Let me leave you with some reasons very quickly why you should be connected in community. I'll say that community be, well, really, it, it challenges us to be more like Jesus. You can read the scripture reference on your own, but nothing makes you more like Jesus than the daily grind of interaction with others. Scripture reminds us that we're put into relationships in order to encourage one another in our pursuit of God and his kingdom. And it's within the context of community that we're given the opportunity to be refined as followers of Jesus. Community meets practical needs. And so just like in the early church, community is a place where we come and we get our physical needs met. We need to learn to let down our walls. We need to learn to ask for help from brothers and sisters in Christ. We, whether we need somebody to pick up some medicine for us when we're sick or cook us a meal, the body of Christ was made to support and love one another in very practical ways. And we can learn about love within the exchange of practical needs. Community carries you emotionally. And just as important physical needs so are the emotional needs that we carry through life. We're given the responsibility to support each other in hard times, to carry one another's burdens. And as much as we need to be available for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we also need to have the courage to ask them to come alongside when we are the ones that need a support, when we need prayer, when we need a shoulder to cry on. It's important to learn to be real with one another because that's what true community is all about. Community also reveals your gift and talents. Two are better than one because there's double the strength, there's double the stamina, there's double the talents. So within the context of community, we're given the opportunity to discover our gifts and our talents and then use them, why? To bless other people. We're each given a specific role in the body of Christ and it's within these relationships that our roles can be used to be glorifying God at the fullest. Community opens your eyes to the needs of other people. Within community, we're encouraged to look around at the needs of those around us. We're called to strengthen those who are weak and to encourage those who are down and out. And so community calls out of our self-centeredness and self-absorption by giving us the responsibility to look outward. Community empowers your relationship with God. See, there's something real about the concept and the power of numbers. When we're surrounded by other believers like we are today, we feel empowered in our faith. We even may feel more sensitive to God's presence in our lives. And so there's something powerful about believers joining together, making each other accountable and being a sort of witness in one another's lives. We need people checking in on us, asking the hard questions and challenging us to live out our faith. There's one group that I'm involved with. It's a group of men. I'll just say it's a guy's group. Where the openness and the transparency of that group is so raw. I have never seen men be this open. 
It's mind-boggling. It's amazing. When I'm, when I'm listing all this stuff, the, this group is running through my mind, the stories are running through my mind, the transparency is running through my mind, the support of how they gather around and assist one another. I've never seen that before in my years of ministry. But something is happening to some of the men in our community. And it's awesome. As a matter of fact, they get it. And they get it at great personal risk. Because guys don't like to self-disclose. Community helps meet our need for love. There's no, demand, there's no denying that you know, we are men and women who crave love. We're made to and by a relational God who longs for us to be in relationship with him. But even more amazing is that God gives us the gift of each other as a way to meet our earthly needs for love. Brotherly love, phileo, as scripture calls it. We're given this beautiful representation of a greatest friend who laid down his life for us. But we're also called to love each other in the same way. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters. Community offers opportunities for confession, which leads to healing. There's power in confession. And it gives us a chance to bring to light the things that we've been holding back in darkness. And so within community, we we're given the opportunity to get real with one another, to confess our sins and to break free from the things that are holding us back from the living God's best life for us. And so true community requires transparency, requires authenticity, requires confession. Community teaches you to work through the conflict. Bring any group of people together and one thing is for certain, that conflict is inevitable. But we're called to work through our divisions. We're called to work with one another as a body of believers. We're asked to be a united body which isn't always easy or natural. And it's a humbling experience that teaches us to lay down our pride, to learn assertiveness and to enhance our communication. This is what community is about. We need each other because within the messiness of relationships with one another, we're reminded of our own personal desperate need for him. And let me just say this, community gives you the chance to forgive. There's nothing more beautiful than the picture in the gospel displayed through our healthy interactions as a body of believers. Within this body, we're bound to get hurt. And then we're guaranteed the opportunity to forgive. When you think about it, we get to feel what Jesus felt as he suffered wounds at the hands of the people that he loved. And he loved them anyway. I think this is the hardest part about community. But it's the part that makes us most like him. So every day we're called to become more like Jesus and community is one of the ways that we're invited to do so. So what does that look like in your life today? It's tough, right? In our mobile, quick-changing society, a world full of drive-through and text message or substitutes for a long term authentic community 
you know, it used to be that community was more than an emotional, spiritual need. It was actually a matter of survival in a community where many hands were needed. Why? To plant crops, to harvest them, to build barns, to prepare food for the workers. There was a time where friends and neighbors were the first in the line of defense against life's problems. To the point that community was actually unavoidable, but we have changed that. And so here at Seoul, yeah, this is our Life Group Launch Sunday. But I want to leave this final thought with you. We believe that we're created to live deeply with one another, to carry each other's burdens, to share our possessions, and to pray for and confess our sins to each other, and to suffer and celebrate together. Welcome to Seoul. And if this is your church, be a part of the community. If you haven't found a life group, and I can, I can honestly say we, we can't always accommodate everyone because of time schedules and everything else, but we will do our best. But yeah, I have to understand that it's in these sacred relationships and honest, loving communities that God begins to transform us. Because the way of Jesus cannot be lived alone. I invite you to stand. I've asked the worship team to sing this song entitled Thousand Hallelujahs. I throw it back in your court today. What does a community look like in your life? Let's sing. Let's lift up the name of the Lord together. I'll pray and give us a blessing.
I want to encourage you to join or start a life group. And I know for many of you this would be a big step, but it would be a world of a difference. Alpha, for those who don't know, as Jordan said, is a dinner series followed by a conversation designed for those who would not typically identify themselves as Christian, but are interested in exploring life, exploring spirituality and faith through a Christian lens in a relaxed and non-judgmental environment. And so if you're here today, maybe you consider yourself an atheist or a skeptic, you're not buying everything I'm tossing at you, um, or you're simply curious about faith, I would love for you to bring your thoughts and your discussion to Alpha, where you can explore the questions of life with new friends. And so Alpha begins tomorrow night at 6.30 with dinner and dessert. How's that? And it'll end at 8.30 to keep in your time with respect. And you can register online. Go to our website and register online. Talk to Mike Monday out in the hallway in the atrium. And we'll be glad to help you out. We need each other. God, bring to mind people that we interact with every day. Family, friends, neighbors. And make us aware of the connections that we have. Father, show us things in our lives that are really superficial, things like clothing, possessions, skin color. God, show us the shallow ways where we have allowed divisions to exist between our fellow humans. God, show us the bonds that we have had with others that we're not even aware of. And God, our dream here at Soul is that everyone can say that there is a, there's someone who's got their back. And we want to be that kind of force in this world because we're bombarded by all these voices that, so that we may just take the time to listen to you so that you can heal us and speak something into us and give us courage and take away our fears. We want to see something bigger. We want to see something that we can give our lives to and acknowledge you, God, as holy. Show us the places that we have covered up or hidden and we know that is not right. Convict us. And help us to live in the way that you've made us to live is my prayer. And all of God's people who agreed said amen. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for the blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise. If you want a blessing before you leave, just put your hands in the air. Able-bodied people, this is not your blessing, but able-bodied. If you can help us stack chairs eight high at the end of the gathering, that would be great. But here it is. This is the blessing now. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called. Think about that. May the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching. May you encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God a thousand hallelujahs. And whatever you do, be it in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him to God the Father. Now peace be with you. We'll see you next week. Now go and live the church and sign up if you haven't done so already.